Well, good morning. I know I saw uh, some people that were new this morning. My name is Nick, and I am so glad to be with you this morning. I want to start out this morning with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for all these folks who made it out this morning in the middle of uh, single-digit temperatures this morning and lots of snow and, and uh, big, big temperature swings this week. And so, Lord, I thank you that they're here. I pray that you would open your word to us this morning and help us to uh, understand it and to grow in knowledge and wisdom. We love you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Well, hey, I want to start out with a story this morning. There was a, a court trial going on in a small southern town, and a local prosecuting attorney called his first witness to the stand. She was sworn in, and they asked her, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And she said, yes, I, I do. And she was a uh, proper, well-dressed, elderly lady, the grandmother type, well-spoken and poised. And the prosecuting attorney approached the woman and said, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? <clears throat> and she said, why, yes, I know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy, and frankly, you're a big disappointment to me. <laughs> you lie, you manipulate people, you talk badly behind their backs, you think you're a rising big shot when you haven't the sense to realize you will never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper-pushing fraud. Yes, I know you quite well. Well, the lawyer was stunned. He couldn't think what to say for a few minutes, and so he slowly backs away, fearing the looks from the judge and the jurors, and he didn't know what to do. So the next thing he said, he said, well, do you know the defense attorney? And she again said, why, yes, I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster too. He's lazy, bigoted, has a drinking problem, can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Yes, I know him quite well. The defense attorney almost fainted and was seen slipping downward in his chair looking at the floor. Laughter mixed with gasps thundered throughout the courtroom and the audience was on the verge of chaos. At this point, the judge brought the courtroom to silence. He called both of the lawyers to the front and he said in a very quiet voice, if either of you morons ask her if she knows me, I'm sending you both to jail. <laughs> Mrs. Jones certainly had her own judgmental opinions, and when asked to tell the truth, she told the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help her God. And she uh, caused quite the ruckus. As we continue in the Sermon on the Mount today, we've been in this sermon for a number of weeks. We've been in the Gospel series where we are working our way chronologically through the Gospel. This is now week 28 of going through the Gospels, and we are hopefully going to bring to a close today this sermon on the mount, this probably the most important sermon that has ever been preached by the greatest preacher that has ever preached, and uh, we're, we're going to bring it to a close. In the words of God in the flesh, Jesus is speaking over these crowds about what it means to be his followers in this life. And 
he constantly reminds us that we cannot do it without him. That we have to live as seekers of him. And Jesus will continue to do this as we read the final chapter, which you might have figured out is going to deal with judgment and fruit. We are in Matthew chapter 7. If you have a Bible or device, open up to Matthew 7. And we're going to start out this morning by reading just the first six verses of Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you not be judged, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So let's break that down a little bit. This first statement of Matthew chapter 7 gets used entirely wrongly so often. It starts out, it says, judge not that you not be judged. And so most of the world will just say, you're a Christian, you can't judge me. Right? You're not allowed to judge. Is that what that means? Does it mean you are never allowed to make a judgment of any kind on any person for any reason? Well, it can't be that because we see that throughout the Bible, right? Elijah spoke forcefully against Ahab and the prophets of Baal. Paul spoke against the Judaizers that were trying to turn people away from God and and turn them towards false gospels. Jesus even tells us to make judgments in John chapter 7. And so we have to figure out, what does this mean? Because obviously we are called to judge things, to evaluate them, to have discernment about things. And so what do we talk about? We have to understand that the word judgment is a big word. Just like in English, there are a lot of different ways that you can look at the word judgment. In the Greek language, there were different words that meant judgment. One of the words is krino, K-R-I-N-O, krino. This is a specific kind of judgment. It is a harsh, self-righteous, hypercritical evaluation. It pretends to know the motives of a person without actually having all of the facts. Ultimately, It means to judge somebody to the point of condemnation. And so when Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged, he's talking about crino judgment. You don't get to be a harsh, overzealous, judgmental person who is saying, oh, that person, I'm condemning them and the way that they live their life. It's a once and for all kind of judgment. We are never called to judge people unto condemnation, but we are supposed to judge people for identification. We need to understand that there are various meanings of these words. And so we have that crino, but then there's also anacrino, which is examination and investigation. And there's also diacrino which is to make a distinction, to separate, to decide. 
And so those are the things that we are called to do. We need to be able to discern. And when we look at this opening paragraph, the first thing we see is we are not to be crino judgers of people. We are not to make the call for what their final destination is or who they are or what their motives are. We are not the final judge. We are not the ultimate judge and we are not the judges of people's motives or feelings. I think that's one of the biggest things we need to remember. You don't know people's motives. You don't know their feelings. And so you can't condemn them when you're discerning what's really going on. But we are called to discern and to examine and to investigate, right? If you have a 17-year-old daughter at home like I do, and some dude shows up on your doorstep to take her on a date, are you going to evaluate the situation? Or are you going to just be like, eh, it's fine, I'm not allowed to judge? Heck no. I am evaluating this young man from the moment he shows up on my doorstep. I'm going to try not to crino him. I'm going to, I'm going to struggle not to, but I'm going to anacrino and diacrino the heck out of him. Right? If you're a single young person and you go out on a date with somebody, are you allowed to evaluate and discern who that person is? I hope so. Otherwise, you're just like, yeah, whatever. I can't judge. No, we are called to evaluate, to understand what's going on around us. In one of my favorite chapters of the whole New Testament, Acts chapter 17, Luke tells us that the people of Berea were more noble in character because they would examine the scriptures daily to make sure that what Paul said was teaching, was true. So Jesus, or Luke tells them, yes, you are to examine, you are to judge, to discern. Even when Paul, the great evangelist, is preaching, you discern whether what he is saying is true. Now we start out with that, this, this idea that we are not the ultimate judge, but we do discern. But then in verse 2 it tells us something else that I think works either way. It tells us basically that judgment is a boomerang. Whatever kind of judgment you throw out there is going to come straight back to you. If you are judging people in that crino, harsh over-evaluative way, then they are going to judge you back. That is going to come back to you. If you are judging people, evaluating them with grace and mercy, then that will most likely come back to you as well. There's a story in the Old Testament that I think shows this amazingly. It's from the book of Judges, ironically. And you may remember if, we, if you were with us a couple years ago when we went through it, but there was a king named Adonai Zedak, or Bezek. And when they capture him, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Because if you don't have thumbs, you can't hold a sword. And if you don't have big toes, you can't run away fast. And so they take his thumbs and his toes, and he actually says, basically, this is fair, because when I was the king, I had 70 kings with their thumbs and toes cut off in my court. He acknowledges that the way that he has treated others has now come back on him. 
that his judgment was harsh and now it has come back. This kind of judgment that you treat people with will most likely come back and be used against or for you. Then in verses 3 through 5, it speaks about another word that is linked to judgment in Greek. And you might remember this word from a few weeks ago. We talked about hypocritos, hypocrites, right? The stage actors who pretend to be something they're not. And Jesus says that the Pharisees are acting like these actors in real life, pretending that they're something that they are not. And he is judging them for being false. It points to this hypocrisy when Jesus starts to talk about how we judge others for the speck in their eye when we have the log in our own. He says, first take the log out of your own eye, then help your brother with his speck. It helps others for you to remove the speck from your eye. Do you understand that? It's not just for you. We, re- we remove the log so that we can help our brothers and sisters also see clearly. So there's this idea of hypocrisy, but there's also this idea of if you are not healthy, you cannot help others get to know Jesus better and be more like Jesus. And I think about this. It's interesting if you read this. The log and the splinter are made from the same substance. They're both, it's wood, right? One's a splinter, one's a log. But they're made from the same substance. And so when you see somebody who has something made from the same substance in their eye, you recognize that. You recognize it because it's a log in yours, but you say, ah, you got the same thing. Are you hypercritical about some particular thing that you see in other people? Like if you're honest with yourself, you say like, I try not to judge, you know, with that harsh judgment, but there's this one thing that I see in other people that just drives me nuts. I would bet you there's something there where you recognize the substance of that splinter because you have it in your own eye. Maybe not the exact same way, but there's something there where you recognize that. And maybe the law, maybe you don't even, the, the visual image, if you just think about it, is so funny. Somebody with a, with a log sticking out of their eye, and they're like, I don't see any log, but I can see your splinter. Right? But we see it. Another thing that jumps out to me, I think is interesting here. Jesus uses the eye as the basis of the illustration. The eye is one of, if not the most tender part of our entire bodies, right? I've had an eye injury. I had to have surgery to fix an eye injury because I got hit in the eye. It was the dumbest story of all time. I was playing badminton, and I got hit in the eye with one of those birdies, which weigh nothing, but it hit me so hard that it actually caused me to go completely blind in one eye for a month. And the pressure behind my eye was eight times what you were supposed to have. They almost had to drain it. It was the dumb, I, I wish I had a cool story. Like I was fighting a war and got hit with a bullet. Like, no, I was playing badminton. Dumbest story of all time. But it caused 
dramatic injury, and 10 years later, I had a, I had a uh, cataract in my eye. I had to have surgery to have that removed. Like, this whole thing. The eye is so sensitive that a stupid plastic birdie can destroy it almost. And Jesus uses this illustration to show us when you're dealing with other people, you have to be sensitive. You're dealing with your own eye, you're dealing with others, but you can't, it's not like a splinter in your finger. You can't just dig it out. You have to be so sensitive when dealing with an injury to the eye, with something going on. And so he uses that as illustration. And I think that's on purpose because Jesus wants us to understand that when we are dealing with people and, and removing our own log or, or asking other people to see the speck in their own eye, we have to be so sensitive because of what it can do to us. So he calls us to do that. Verse 6 of this chapter is a very interesting verse. He says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls. Or you might hear the old, the old version, don't cast your pearls before the swine lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, you have to understand, dogs were not cuddly little pets in Israel at this time. They are scavengers. They are wild animals. And so if you're picturing like your sweet little Molly back home, like that's not it. Does anyone have a dog named Molly? Because I would have nailed that. No? Oh, man. Yeah. No, you don't. Um, <laughs> it's a, they're scavengers. And pigs were, I'm sure you know, unclean animals. And so Jesus is saying, don't give what is good and holy to the wild dogs, to the scavengers, to the unholy. And he points this to make the point that we are not, we need to be discerning to not give the holy things to the wild scavengers and to that which is unclean, which is hard for us because the first thing, we, like we think Jesus would want us to go and give holiness and righteousness and all this goodness to everyone, Right? But we also have to discern that there are times when we go out there and, and maybe we're trying to serve the Lord and maybe we're trying to, to use our spiritual energy to share Jesus with people, but, but you realize after a time, like, they're just not interested. Or they're using you because they like to argue with people. Or they're using you just because you're nice and so they'll hang out with you, but, but they have no interest in spiritual things or the things of God. That's a really difficult thing as a pastor because I want, I want to give Jesus to everyone as much as I can, but there's been people, especially when I was in college ministry for a long time, where it just would become clear that this young man just wants to argue with me. That, that's his whole goal. And at some point, I have to ask myself, am I giving my energy, my spiritual discernment, like the gifts that God's given me, am I, am I wasting them? Am I casting them before swine or giving what is holy to the dogs. In the Old Testament, if the priests had meat that was consecrated to God, they would not throw that meat out to the scavenger dogs. It was too holy. It was meant for God. And so there's times, and, I, and I, please understand, this is usually the, uh, not the case, but there are times when you just have to realize this person that I'm giving all my spiritual energy to, 
towards is just not interested or they're not ready. And you have to allow God to work in them because they don't want to listen to you. Don't give all the holy things to people that will just cast it aside. To be effective in the kingdom of God, you have to discern if somebody is open to the things of God or if they just want to argue or worse, if they are intentionally wasting your time. Because whether you realize or not, there are evil people in this world who will just intentionally waste your time and frustrate you and grieve you and they have no intention of ever hearing what God has to say to them, at least not at that time. Let's continue on. Let's read verses 7 through 11. Sorry, I have a lot to say today, so I'm talking fast. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This is interesting. Right at the beginning of that verse, you see the word ask. And in the original language, that means a command. This is Jesus telling the people, ask. He's commanding them, ask. Right? By ask, he's saying, pray. Ask God to give you these good things. Why would God have to command us to pray? Because we don't. Right? Like, if we're honest, because sometimes we just don't. And he's saying, pray. Ask for good things. God wants to give his sons and his daughters good things. He wants to give great things. He wants to bring blessing to their life and fulfill their needs. But again, we need to make sure we understand the context of this message because this is about spiritual growth. This is about discernment. This is about the ability to judge rightly. The ability to see what God's doing. This verse is not about sports, cars, and mansions. It's not saying, ask me for a Maserati and I shall give it to you. You don't go up and you go to the spiritual ATM of Jesus and say, I ask you for a million. That's not what this is talking about. This is about asking God to bless you with discernment and judgment and righteousness. He says, if you ask for those things, they will be given to you. They are good gifts. In that verse 9, if an earthly father says, who is evil, which is crazy, because we are all evil and desperately wicked in our hearts, if a father can give good gifts, how much more can God give to his children? I love this. God, Jesus compares his feelings, God's feelings towards us as one of the most selfless relationships that we have, right? If you, if you have kids, you understand as much as your kids argue and say, no, I love you more. No, you don't. You don't, even, you don't even understand. You have no clue what it means to love a child in a selfless way. That, that in many ways, let's be honest, they offer you nothing <laughs> other than love back. They take your money, they take your time, they take your sanity, and you still adore them. And this is what God, he, he likens that relationship 
to how he feels about us. Because let's be honest, there's times where even God's like, what are you doing? Right? You ever really stop to think about that? You ever, you ever look at your child and feel that love that only a parent can feel and try to, try to imagine that that's what God feels for you? That blows my mind. Bob Goff is a, a guy who writes books, and I really like him. And he talks in one of his books about uh, God has your picture in his wallet, which some people might think that's way too ooey-gooey for them. But I love it, right? God has one of those flap accordion things that goes a billion miles long. So this is my kids. This is Tim and Katie. and He just goes through all of them. Or the more modern version, that's my actual phone background screen with my wife and my three kids. Like, that God loves you so much, he's got you as the background screen on his phone like a father would. Right? I love that picture because every one of the people in my family are doing something that is so uniquely them. My kids are watching online right now. Yes, I'm talking about you. Izzy is hugging a, a pole. We have no idea. Silas is flexing because he's 10. And Eva's just cracking up at the whole thing. And my wife just looks stunning as always. So like that to me, like God has this love for us, even though he's righteous and holy and all that stuff. I know there's people who are just like, yeah, you sound way too ooey-gooey, Tim. Uh, God still loves us so much that he has this relationship like a father has to his children, and I think that's incredible. He tells us, ask, pray. The next verse is another verse that gets used out of context in a vacuum all the time. You know it, even if you've never read a single word of the Bible, and this is the first time you've ever been in a church in your entire life, you have heard these words from Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You maybe not have heard that last part, but you've heard that golden rule, so to speak, right? Do unto others what you want done unto yourself. It comes directly from Jesus. And often this verse is quoted in a vacuum. It's one of the most famous things that Jesus ever said. It's written on greeting cards. It's quoted in secular society. It's the golden rule. And even people who pay no attention to the Bible or the wisdom of God say, this is how we should live. Huh. Interesting that Jesus said it. Right? But it's usually pulled completely out of the context, as we talked about. It's uh, isolated down. People get rid of the first word altogether, which is interesting, right? It starts out by saying, so, or therefore. And what do we say if there's a word therefore? What's it there for? It's bringing us back to the context of what is happening. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Right? So, meaning, because God has blessed you so much, because God wants to answer those prayers, because God wants to give you gifts of discernment and judgment and all those things, because of all that, treat others how you want to be treated or judge others with mercy and grace like you want to be judged with. 
God has blessed us so richly, we should be seeking to bless other people in the ways that God has blessed us. Do you ever just think specifically how to be a blessing to somebody that you know? Not just in general. Like, maybe it's your spouse, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a friend or somebody you know. Do you think, like, how could I bless them specifically? Right? That's an amazing thing because if you do that, then people understand that you're paying attention to them. You hear their words. You've, you've listened when they say, man, I just really like Butterfinger bars. And then you're like, hey, guess what I have? Or whatever silly thing it is. You pay attention. You be a part of their lives and you seek how you can be a blessing to them. There's nothing better than that when a friend coworker, whatever, brings you a gift or says, or maybe they just know that you're somebody who like really needs words of encouragement. So they go out of their way to give you words of encouragement. Or maybe you're a hugger and somebody gives you a, a, a appropriate hug. You know, if you love Jesus and it's this side, no, just kidding, don't. You know, leave room for Jesus, that's all. That's youth ministry 101. Leave room for I used to say, leave room for sumo, Jesus. So, I'm an idiot. Okay. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. This is a very challenging, there's a lot of really deep, again, Tim, everything in this could be its own sermon, right? Matthew 7, 13, 14, a very challenging but amazing verse. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus lays out, like we're talking about judgment, right? And then he goes, he, he takes a step to, to God's judgment, to Crino judgment. And he says there, there is a judgment that comes from God, that is the ultimate judgment. He says, and that judgment is narrow. This is a verse that a lot of people really struggle with because they don't like these words, that the path is narrow, that one gate is wide and easy, but it leads to destruction, and many people go down that path. But there's another that is a narrow path that's rocky and difficult, but it is the gate to salvation. People say, oh, Christianity is so narrow-minded. Yeah. Yeah. Because Jesus told us very clearly there's only one way. And it's a narrow path. And he doesn't share his righteousness and his glory with all these false gods or false ideas. He says, I loved you so much that I laid my life down for you while you were still sinners. And so there is a narrow path, and it is the path that goes only through relationship with Jesus. And we see people, they, they get so upset, they're so narrow-minded. It's like, if there is an ultimate truth, then wouldn't it be a narrow path? Wouldn't it be like there is only one way? 
People get more concerned about the feelings of others than they are about what's actually true. And I know this is a hard word, but this is exactly what he's talking about. It's a narrow path. And the path goes through Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way. There is no all roads lead to the same place. They are divergent paths that head in opposite directions. And Jesus says, be graceful and merciful in your judgment of people, but understand that there is an ultimate judge that will judge you by what you've done with Jesus in your life. Have you given him control and called him Lord and Savior? That is the ultimate judgment. And we might, we might wonder why Jesus suddenly turns from talking about graceful and merciful judgment towards others to talking about this, but this is exactly what we're going to see in the next prophet, in the next paragraph. He's not just randomly saying this because what he has to say next to us is a warning about the world that we live in now and the world that they lived in at the time because in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, he says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. He starts out with this crino judgment of God and then says, there's a warning. Beware that there are false prophets who are trying to get you to veer off of the path of the narrow gate. They're trying to convince you that every path leads to the same place. You know, that ultimately, like, what you do in this life really doesn't matter at all. The false teacher, teachers that tell you, just do what makes you happy. The worst advice you can possibly give somebody. Do whatever makes you happy because, again, our hearts often are desperately wicked, right? And we pursue, when we pursue happiness, really what we're saying is I'm pursuing what makes me feel temporary pleasure, not what's actually right, right? So he says there's these false prophets, but there are warnings throughout the Bible about this. All the way back to Deuteronomy 13, it warns us that false prophets, that dreamers and miracle workers that do not represent God will come. Isaiah says, prophets who speak lies in my name. Jeremiah says, woe to those prophets who prophesy, prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them. Even Jesus says in Matthew 24, many will come in my name and say, I am the Christ and deceive many False prophets will arise and deceive many. Paul in Acts chapter 20 says, When I leave, ravenous wolves will come. There is reminder after reminder in the Bible that there will be those who are seeking to destroy those who are on the narrow path and send them down the other route. Okay. This is one of my soapbox. You guys know I do this sometimes. Soapbox issue. We talk about 
the dangers of wolves in sheep's clothing quite a bit. You like that? It's both terrifying and cute. That's what I like about it. It's like, oh, that's terrifying, but theologically, uh, okay. Um, we talk about wolf in sheep's clothing, and it's a real thing that we should talk about because there are people everywhere who are doing this. Maybe they're in churches. They are sitting there, and, and their desire is to ultimately get people to veer off of the narrow path. But do you know what I think is even scarier than wolves in sheep's clothing? Wolves in shepherd's clothing. Wolves in shepherd's clothing. I did not expect that reaction to that picture. That's funny. It is cool, right? Except for it's not. Uh, But what's scarier to me than the wolf in the sheep's clothing out, out in the sheepfold is when the wolf is in front. And they're preaching a message that is taking people out of the narrow path and directly into the mouth of the wolf pack. And their message, you'll, you'll see their message. Listen, the wolf calls people to himself not to Jesus. You'll see these people who claim to be sent in the name of God, but they are calling people to follow them. Right? If you're old enough, you remember Jim Jones. Right? Calling people to follow him all the way to Guyana and unto their death. Right? And the story after story, the guy in Waco, Texas, telling people, I'm Jesus. Right, And not, not all of them are that extreme. There are also just preachers out there, and really all they care about is making themselves money, making themselves famous, selling books, whatever it is, but they're calling people to themselves, not to Jesus. Be so aware, friends, that this is a reality. And if I'm ever in the front of the sheepfold and I start calling people to myself, may God strike me down. Right? Take me out of this ministry because I don't want to be that guy. And it's easy. That's one of the things that people don't want to tell you. It's easy because when people start paying attention to you and listening to your words, it's real easy to start buying your own press clippings if you don't stay humble and understand I can't do any of this apart from the grace and mercy of God. Watch out for it. All right, off my soapbox or my stool, as it were. As we discern amongst those who claim to be serving the Lord, the word tells us here, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is what I was just talking about. With a preacher, you're going to recognize the fruit that is going out. Or if it's just a person who's sitting in the church, you're going to recognize the fruit in their lives. You're going to see Jesus acting through them. What are they producing? What is the fruit of their ministry, the fruit of their lives? Is it causing people to love Jesus more? Is it causing them to love people more? What do you recognize and discern and evaluate in the lives of others? I had a pool when I was a little kid, not in Montana, in Southern California, and 
the neighbors had trees that actually like hung kind of over our pool, over the fence. And every year we would have fresh plums, which are delicious, and fresh apricots, which are disgusting, <laughs> fall into our pool. And so I could walk out in certain parts of the year and I could just grab a fresh plum and eat that delicious plum. And I could take an apricot and throw it against a wall just to destroy it. Right? Personal opinion, okay? Sorry. But I could go out and do that anytime. And so if you were visiting me at my house, I could say, hey, we have fresh plums in back. Do you want one? And you could say, yeah, that'd be great. So I would go out, and then I, maybe I'd bring you an apricot. And you're like, this isn't a plum? And I'm like, yeah, it is. You're like, no, this is a disgusting apricot. I'm like, no, it's not. And you're like, what are you talking about now? I can lie to you and tell you that the fruit is one thing when it's actually something else. And we need to learn how to discern what these things are because there are far, false prophets who will bring you something and they'll hand it to you and, you say, and they'll say, this is the gospel. But it's not. It's a disgusting apricot. Someone's like, I love apricots. Sorry, okay. I also hate cats. Get over it. Okay. Sorry, don't kill me. Okay. We have to understand what is true in order to identify what is fake. This is one of the most important things in our lives, guys. I've told the story before. When I worked at a retail store and they showed me how to, how to discern what fake currency looked like, they didn't show me fake currency. They showed me real currency and showed me how to understand what that is. And if it doesn't fit that, then it's false. And so we need to understand the gospel. We need to understand the truth, the word of God, so that when somebody comes and, and gives you something, and it might look so close, it might be like literally one letter off, like some of the cults have changed their Bibles, to have one extra little letter, and it's so close. But when you know the truth, you can say, ah, that's false. You can discern it. You can understand you can be fruit inspectors, right? We are not called to be judgmental to the point of condemnation, but we are called to be fruit inspectors for the truth that we are being sold and from people that are trying to give it to us. We have to know the truth in order to see the false Matthew 7, 21, 23. Another, another hard verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many of you will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is another one that people struggle with because they want to believe, like, if I just say the right thing, if I just pray the right prayer, I'm good. I'll be saved. If I just call out the name of Jesus. But there's these people that what they say about the Lord is one thing, but they don't submit to the authority of the Lord. They don't give their lives to him. They don't 
They don't seek true spirituality. They speak spiritually, but they are missing the actual lifestyle of someone whose life has been changed by the Lord. There are those who know, that claim to know the Lord, but the fruit of their lives does not bear out that they've actually been saved by the Lord's grace and mercy. And I want to be really, really clear here. Listen, if you've checked out, come back to me. We are not saved by the good works that we do in this life. Everyone very clear on this. You cannot earn your salvation at all. But if you know Jesus, if your life is changed by the Lord, if you've made him Lord and Savior, there will be fruit that comes from that. And it will be fruit that people can see and inspect and witness. Your life will be changed by the gospel. Those who are saved by Jesus should bear fruit of that salvation in their lives. That's not what saves you. You don't do good things to be saved. You do good things because you are saved. Okay? Jesus is telling us your life should show fruit. We all still struggle. We all still are far from perfect, and we struggle against sin, but we seek to not live perpetually in sin, and we seek to perpetually live our lives more and more surrendered to Jesus. But there should be fruit from it. It's a scary thing for many people to hear this because they say, Lord, Lord, and you won't enter the kingdom of God, but the reality is that they were only paying lip service. They were only saying what they thought they needed to say, but never actually repenting in faith and following Christ. This is why the great evangelist, when he writes his letter, when Paul writes his letter to Rome, he sums up the whole gospel many times. But one of the times he does so is in verse 9 of chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. It can't just be lip service. Bless you. Literally. Sorry. I'm an idiot. Okay. If you believe in your heart, the gospel will change your heart, your life, and your actions. Matthew 7, 24 through 27 Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You might look and you might see two houses and they might look exactly the same. And structurally, they are built exactly the same above the foundation. But their foundations are on very different types of soil. One is built upon the rock and one is built upon the sandy land. And it's everything in me not to start singing a middle school camp song right now. Got to build your house upon the rock. Okay. 
Don't do that again. Okay. You might remember this picture from uh, about a year and a half ago when there was floods. And this is down near Gardner. And this whole house ended up falling into the Yellowstone River because it was built. I mean, part of it was they can't understand the flood stage, all that. But, like, it's right there on the sandy land right next to the river. And the whole thing falls in. And I remember watching this video and just being blown away because I'm like, I'm watching the Bible in real life. Right? Build your house upon the rock, not so close to the shore. Right? We have to build our life on firm foundation. What is your life built upon? I've said this a bunch of times. I'm going to keep saying it. We are not meant as Christians to have one part of our life is that we are a Christian. One part of our life is Jesus. No, he is supposed to be the foundation upon which everything is built. He is the rock that we build our life on so that we don't end up falling into the Yellowstone River. Right? That is the truth. And we look ahead too. This is hard for us, but planning ahead, what are the storms that are going to come? What are the winds that are going to blow? What are the things that are going to beat against my house? And is the foundation of my life so strong that we will be able to withstand it? Built upon Jesus alone. The last couple of verses, when Jesus finished saying these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. These are the final words of an amazing sermon that lasted for three chapters of the Bible. But if you actually look at it, this whole sermon probably took less time to preach than I've been talking up here this morning. 20, 25 minutes, this entire sermon. And Jesus gives this message that stands to this day, a firm foundation upon which we build all of our life. It's it's almost, I struggled with this this week, it's almost arrogant of me to even stand here and try to explain Jesus' sermon. Like, part of me wishes like, I would have just read the Sermon on the Mount and been like, Jesus is a lot better teacher than I am. Just listen to this. But I wanted to spend these weeks going through this. He gives them and us this master class of all master classes on life and faith. And he speaks with authority and truth. Unlike the other scholars, he plainly states the truth because he is the one who is the author of the truth. And I pray that as we finish this sermon today, that we are just as astonished and impacted by these words of our Lord as they are a blessing to us, just as they would have been such an amazing blessing to those who were there that day who got to hear them come directly from his mouth, but now we have the Lord in our hearts and he can work those things in us as we continue to seek to grow in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I know that uh, what we covered today uh, could be and is uh, many, many books worth of things, and I just pray that you would start to plant seeds in us 
where we are growing more and more to understand what it means to discern and to judge and to uh, examine fruits and to see you in people and that you would give us the ability to discern when something is false and something is trying to (coughs) pull us away from that narrow path. And I pray that everybody here would be on that narrow path to go through that narrow gate and we know that you are the gate John tells us that you are the gate so may we enter into your kingdom through you as you've invited us to do as you call us to do and may we may we be merciful and graceful with one another but pull out the logs in our own eyes so that we can serve one another to pull out the speck in each other and, and just As we grow, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be a part of a church full of people that love you and love one another. Help us to do that well. In Jesus' name.